Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast. This is episode 23, Robert's Kronia and the Battle of Paderberg. The siege of Kimberley has been lifted and the enigmatic and colourful General French and his 5,000 strong cavalry are in charge of the city. The Boers have withdrawn just in time to avoid being caught by the flying column, which had itself suffered from the speed of the trip between the Riet River and Kimberley. We heard last week how hundreds of horses dropped dead and the great flying column was now a limping wreck. Only around 1,400 horses remained in good health. De Beers' diamond kingpin, Cecil John Rhodes, had demanded he be saved and his wailing had led to the rush to Kimberley. But in doing so, French had overstretched his horses and men both were exhausted. The commander-in-chief of the British Army Corps, Lord Roberts, was tracking the Boer force of around 5,000, which had retreated northeastwards towards Bloemfontein from their trenches. It was a strange cavalcade, ox wagons, horses, carts, with the Boers' entire families on board moving at around 20 kilometres a day. The British scouts in this case knew exactly where they were. It doesn't take a tracking genius to follow 5,000 men on horses, hundreds of oxen and ox wagons moving in a tight group. As with most strategies in war, though, Cronier had had three options. This is where Clausewitz, the great writer about strategy, would have had a field day. He always thought in options of three, and Cronier indeed faced three choices. First, he could withdraw to the north along the rower line towards Muffy King, slowing the British advance. Secondly, he could lie in wait for Roberts's logistics column of bullocks and carts and wage guerrilla warfare in hit-and-run tactics. Or third, he could retreat northeast across the open felt towards Bloemfontein as the crow flies, adopting an almost aviation-like straight run at the capital. It was at this point that General Cronier seemed to forget that he was a Boer and that the golden rule was never get caught flat-footed and always remain mobile. When faced with vastly superior numbers, use superior mobility. It's a simple equation and true to this day. So on the night of the 15th of February, as Cecil John Rhodes wined and dined his saviours, the cavalry in Kimberley, Cronier ordered his men to retreat. Option three. Around 5,000 Transvaalers and Freestaters rolled out from their earthworks surrounding Marcusfontein. They had slept, fought and survived here for 10 weeks. Christian de Wet, the great Boer general, took issue with Cronier's plan that the Boer force withdraw in an easterly direction along the wooded banks of the Moda River all the way to Bloemfontein. De Wet had hatched an idea long before about the art of guerrilla warfare and began to plan, but Cronier wasn't listening. It was a full moon on the night of the 15th of February 1900, and a five-mile-long train of ox wagons passed within earshot of British General Kelly Kenny's 6th Division encamped on the Moda River. Incredibly, no one saw or heard the Boer ox wagon train. It had been a dramatic few days. On the 15th of February, General French had swept the Boers aside with that classical cavalry charge into Kimberley. On the 16th, Lord Roberts moved headquarters to Jakobstal on the road to Bloemfontein, the Free State Republic capital. It was his intention to transfer the remainder of his force of 30,000 straight to Kimberley. Scouting parties were sent out, and eventually General Kelly Kenny's division found Cronier's army on the banks of the Moda River at Paardeberg Drift. French had galloped into Kimberley, spent a night there, then pulled together the remaining horses that were able to travel, 1,400, and raced from Kimberley to intercept Cronier. The following morning, on the 17th of February, he found the enormous Boer lager, which was 12 kilometres long on both sides of the Moda. 
Kronia could have kept moving and ordered his men to loosen their bonds from the womenfolk and their children and then ride off into the felt, safe from the much-weakened General French. Instead, in what appears to be a mental shutdown, Kronia stopped. He ordered the men to entrench around the Moda River, which they did. Fecht's General Christian de Vett had warned against such a strategy. He had implored General Cronier to allow the men to detach and race off, ready to fight another day. De Vett knew that General French had relieved Kimberley and now moved towards Paderbag Drift with a force of a few hundred. De Vett had been fighting a little way away and had passed on messages to General Cronier. Meanwhile, General French had arrived at the drift and spotted the huge Boer cavalcade. French, being French, wanted to attack immediately. Cronier's commandos were in a real tight spot. They had kept their families with them and were thrown into some confusion. This didn't last long, though. The Boer artillery fired back on French almost immediately. He then withdrew, realizing he was outgunned and also not in an ideal position to launch cavalry attacks. The British force had hurried after the Boers once they realized that they'd failed to halt Cronier, and that morning of the 18th, Lieutenant General Thomas Kelly Kenny, the commander of the 6th Division, stood on a copy overlooking Cronier's position straddling the mortar. Unfortunately for him and hundreds of British soldiers who were about to die, standing nearby was one Lord Kitchener, his moustache twitching. Many books have been written about this British military imperialist. Almost all start by lauding him for his passion and aggression, and almost all end with his total carelessness about human life. He seemed most careless about his own troops' lives, as we'll see in the coming hours of this battle. Ironically, Kelly Kenny was an Irish nationalist. Kitchener was a British imperialist. Once again, the absurdities of the British military and class system were to have an impact on their own men at a battle. Kelly Kenny was in charge, yet Lord Roberts had sent a message to him saying that he should regard any command issued by Kitchener as a command from Lord Roberts himself, which is rather insulting, to say the least. Who is in command? asked Kelly Kenny. You, said Kitchener, who then immediately tried to order his superior officer to attack the Boers in a direct frontal charge, which of course was suicide, as we'll see. So Kitchener was really in command. Roberts was stuck around 50 kilometers away downstream on the Moda River. He had flu. He also thought that the Irishman was too cautious and wanted Kitchener to prod him along. As we'll see, Lord Kitchener was, in fact, recklessly impatient. Hundreds of his own men were fated to die because of Kitchener's lunacy. Kelly Kenny had a brilliantly simple plan. The Boers were to be surrounded. All he had to do was draw up the 100 British field guns and then bomb the Boers into submission. The troops there had food, they had water, they could sit and wait until the Boers surrendered. No chance of escape, not many British troops would die, sorted. Except for one major problem, Lord Kitchener. At some point I'll tell you his full story, which is one of psychopathic violence and personal discipline. But what he did to his men at this point is probable proof enough of the callous nature of British military leadership when it came to how officers generally regarded their cannon fodder troops. While Christian de Vett was riding towards Cronier in an effort to provide support, Kelly Kenny extended the ring around Cronier's lager, sealing him off from his reinforcements. Still, that wasn't enough, and Kitchener demanded immediate action. Kitchener failed to take into account the fact that the 6th Division had marched 50 kilometers in full kit the preceding evening and were in no condition to charge a crash, let alone the heavily armed and well-ensconced Boers. 
Cronier may have blundered by letting himself be cornered, but the Boers were busy doing the usual brilliant trench digging assisted by hundreds of black workers. The Moder River at Paderberg Drift had kilometres of soft white sand on both sides, like some warped picture from a scenic island in the Pacific. It also really helped the defenders. It took far less time to build a trench, and also because an artillery shell would be muffled by the soft sand as it sank a few feet before exploding, protecting the men in the vicinity from some of its shrapnel. Cronier's men had dug a network of rifle pits, which ranged over four kilometres below the circle of wagons and two kilometres above. They were all connected in an ominous precursor to the First World War trench design, meaning that men could move back and forth even in the midst of a heavy bombardment. German military observers were entranced by the spider web and took copious notes. Years later, in 1914-18, they were to copy some of the Boer designs. Lieutenant General Kelly Kenny, the Irishman, explained to Robert's Chief of Staff, Lord Kitchener, how he was going to throttle the Boers into submission. Kitchener was unimpressed. He wanted immediate action, brutal action. He was an instinctive man and wanted the troops to storm the Boer lager immediately. He took over planning from the man who was really in charge and decided that Kelly Kenny and most of the 6th Division should launch a full frontal attack from the south bank of the Moda River. Colville, who had also arrived, would split his 9th Division and the commanders MacDonald and his Highlanders would attack upstream from the south bank and Smith Dorian's 19th Brigade would ford the Moda River at Paderbach Drift and attack upstream from the north. In other words, attack the Boers from their left flank on their side of the river. Just to really scare the Boers, thought Kitchener, he'd also organise a smaller group to try and encircle the wagons from the south. Think of the frontal attack as a holding move, while the northern division would be the right hook upstream and the smaller attack to the south a left hook. Simple plan from Kitchener. Simply disastrous was the effect. Kitchener had not witnessed the two battles where the British attempted similar tactics, Colenso and the Moda River. In both cases, horrific casualties meant the British failed because the entrenched enemy simply shot them down like fish in a barrel and the Boers were waiting for their fish this time too. Kitchener also failed to send up his balloons with the spotters on board just to make sure what the Boers were up to. It's like having a GPS but using an old-fashioned magnetic compass instead. Kitchener now turned to the men around him and said, It's now seven o'clock. We shall be in the lager by half past ten. Unfortunately for Kitchener, this wasn't jolly old England and he wasn't taking a train. Furthermore, Kitchener then issued verbal orders instead of writing them down. He also failed to draw a simple map outlining what was required, and then he failed to delegate authority. Meanwhile, Kelly Kenny was keeping a running journal, and in it he wrote, No written orders of any sort. Kitchener only sends verbal messages, takes my staff and my troops on no order or system. Remember how troops referred to Lord Roberts and Kitchener as Bobs and Kay? The latter's nickname, of course, was also Chaos. And it was an apt nickname, as we'll now see. Kitchener, his moustache twitching and his tall, wiry frame taut, watched from a copy west of Cronier's lager. He watched as these troops began a four-kilometre charge quite clearly in the open while the Boers were hidden in their trenches and in the trees along the mortar. These British troops had been marching since five the previous afternoon, all night, and now were expected to rush the Boers without eating or drinking enough water. 
The right hook attack by the first Welsh and first Essex units ran slap bang into Boer fire and were pinned down with heavy losses. In the centre, Kelly Kenny's men got within 200 metres of the Boers, but were also now pinned down with the loss of many officers, including the unit's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Bowles, who was shot dead. Worse still, when a few of the men managed to get close enough to the river, they discovered it was flooding. Kitchener hadn't checked. To the south, however, the other flanking unit fared a little better. They managed to reach the outlying Boer trenches and captured some commanders. But there too, the commanding officer, Major General Charles Knox, was also shot and wounded. Kitchener was aware things were not going according to his plan. So he then ordered the Highland Brigade to support the 6th Division and charge in a full frontal attack. General Colville, the 9th Division commander, saw the Highlanders begin to move and was flummoxed. No one had explained what was going on, least of all Kitchener. One can hardly say, wrote Colville. The ground was worse for advancing over under fire than that which the guards had to deal with, and I never hoped to see or read of anything grander than the advance of that thin line across the coverless plain under a hail of lead from their invisible enemy in the river banks. It was Methuen's battle at Morda River all over again. This new officer on the ground, this Kitchener, was trying to use the British tactics in India, the Sudan and Egypt against a foe armed with the latest weapons. So, carnage once more. By midday, and well after Kitchener's idle boast of a 10.30 victory, the Highlanders were stuck hundreds of metres from the Morda River, burning in the sun and dying in droves. Lord Kitchener then rode out to see what was going wrong. He arrived at Colville's redoubt at Signal Hill to the west of the battle and said, How about a more determined assault? Colville only had the Cornwall Light Infantry in reserve guarding the baggage train. Kitchener demanded they be let loose on the Boers. After Kitchener rode off, Colville called the officers to him and passed on to the Cornwall's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel W. Aldworth, the cheerful news. It wasn't all going well for the Boers either. The British artillery were bombing their wagons full of women and children and these were on fire. Some exploded as they were loaded with ammunition, so the terrible battle was costing both sides. Kelly Kenny, however, was suffering both emotionally and physically. He had dysentery as well, or what was known as the Moders, but clambered aboard his horse anyway and headed to the field hospital to visit his senior officers, many who were now being treated after suffering gunshot and shrapnel wounds. After he arrived, a Boer pom-pom, which was a cannon that fired one-pound shells like a machine gun, ranged in on the hospital tents and they were hit one by one. There was a scene of panic as the wounded crawled out, some having had their legs amputated only a few minutes before. Kelly Kenny wrote in his journal, Awfully sad, poor fellow's legs being amputated. It sickens one with war. I will now relate to you a small story in the midst of a major enterprise just to encapsulate the calamitous way in which Kitchener treated his men, including officers. Colville had ignored his order to attack immediately and then let his men eat their lunch. Kitchener nodded what he seldom managed and wrote a quick note to Colonel Hannay on the right flank saying the Boers were near defeat and the time had come for one more dash. Most of the brigadiers were actually wounded. Stevenson, MacDonald, Knox, Smith Dorian... Their replacements were also pinned down. Now suddenly Kitchener's order to Hannay was to dash the lager, as if the Boers were exhausted. They weren't. Colonel Hannay must have thought Kitchener was completely mad. 
So he did what any really good commander of really good soldiers must do. He sent the majority of his unit on an errand out of the way, and then turned to the fifty or so others and said simply, We are going to charge the log. He sprang upon his horse and led the suicide charge. The fifty men galloped towards the centre of the Boer line, and in an epic event, heroic and terminal, Hanny remained in his saddle as most of his men around him fell, shot. Then Hanny's horse fell, and he staggered then to his feet and continued running towards the Boers, clutching his revolver. Eventually, this heroic and quite insane event ended with Hanny dead riddled with rounds 250 meters from the Boer trenches. But he had sacrificed himself to save hundreds of his men. Kitchener was unimpressed. It was now an hour before sunset. Christian de Vett, who was watching from the east and fighting the British on their right flank, was astonished. Why did the British leave the key to Paardeberg unprotected? You see, de Vett had spotted a weakness in the British order of battle. He realized there was a copy that overlooked the British attack, and it had been stripped of men when Kitchener ordered them to launch an attack on the Boer lager. So Christian de Vett, who had an uncanny instinct for an enemy's weakness, then ordered his 300 men to take the copy at 5 p.m. This was a jaw-dropping moment. Kitchener, of course, failed to see what was happening. De Vett took control of the copy and a farmhouse nearby and then took around 100 soldiers prisoner at the same time. Let me explain what this incredible man had achieved. In the space of less than an hour, he'd snatched the entire southeast ridgeline from under the noses of a force of 15,000 with only 300 men. It's almost like an epic Greek myth, like an unbelievable Hollywood propaganda movie. But dear listeners, I'm afraid this is a fact. You have to be truly impressed by the sheer clarity and perfect view, the vet's diamond logic versus the mud of Kitchener, the felt-inspired lateral-thinking African versus the arrogant blindness of Kitchener, the very epitome of European discipline versus the anarchic individuality of the Boer. What's more, when Kitchener suddenly realized what was going on, he ordered the copy to be taken. Thousands of British troops and dozens of artillery pieces, though, could not dislodge 300 men with two field guns. By 5.15 in the afternoon, Kitchener's orders to Colville, all those hours before, eventually led to the Cornwalls standing up and charging the Boers on the right of the British line. Joining them was a battalion of 1st Royal Canadians, who their commander, Smith Dorian, had not provided orders yet, and here they were, advancing. Colonel Aldworth of the Cornwalls died almost instantly. The charge was gallant but completely unnecessary, and all because Kitchener wanted this over with. The futile full frontal attacks had failed, all three left, centre and right. And this was the most damaging battle for the British in terms of casualties in the entire war so far. Casualties reached just under 1,300. 24 officers and 279 men were killed. 59 officers and 847 men were wounded. Many more were missing. Kitchener sent a terse note to Roberts. We did not succeed in getting into the enemy's convoy. There we drove the Boers back a considerable distance along the river bed. The troops are maintaining their position, and I hope tomorrow we shall be able to do something more definite. Christian de Vett still held the key to Badeberg, the small copy to the east. Well, it's here we will call a halt, because the British halted for the night. Men had marched 12 hours, then fought for 12 hours. Now they were asleep as they lay, even with bullets whizzing just above their heads. 
Next week, we'll see how the siege idea is reversed, with Kitchener now on a leash as Lord Roberts arrives and enforces a barrage of the Boers rather than the suicidal rushes at hidden trenches. So join me next week for the climax of the Battle of Padebach. In the meantime, please have a look at our website, abwarpodcast.com, our Facebook page, Anglo Boer War Podcast, or you can contact me directly on Twitter at Des Latham. Goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar my saar